the flower is over. It was, as they say, fun while it lasted. flower is over. That is to say, the National Flower Cheol, the National Festival of Traditional Music, held under the auspices of Corthus Cheol Thoidi Aaron, held this year in Cashel in County Tipperary. The flower is over. And after the flower, as usual, the post-mortems, the inquests, the inquiries, the arguments, the discussions as to where it's all going. 
And it's right and proper that there should be these discussions and these inquiries and these inquests. Uh, but in, because paradoxically, an inquest in cultural matters is usually held on living organisms. Uh, however, uh, one thing I find a bit disturbing that most of these discussions and arguments and inquests are about what one might describe as the accidentals of the flair. You know, questions about rowdyism, about undesirable elements, questions about the prices charged for meals, how good the accommodation was, how the people of the town cooperated in providing uh, good uh, a board and lodging for people apart from the hotels, how the hotels were what the licensing hours were like, um, the efficiency of the Gardaí and so forth. Now, all these questions are, of course, important because all these, uh, the answers to these questions can very often um, make it uh, resolve the question as to whether the whole event was a great success or not. But they are questions which are, after all, peripheral. They could be uh, connected with any major gathering, any social, cultural, sporting uh, gathering, gathering at festivals, gathering at race meetings, gatherings of one kind or another around the country. And I feel that, in a way, it has been slightly unfortunate that the raising of these questions has been tending to attach itself particularly to the flower, particularly this question of perhaps over uh, much drinking, perhaps rowdyism and so forth, because, uh, well, anybody who has been knocking around this country for even 20 or 30 years realises that these things are not confined to Flana Kjol, and indeed they may occur uh, to a greater extent at other longer established uh, kinds of gathering. And um, it is, I think, a little unfortunate, and uh, to that extent I do sympathise very strongly with the authorities of Kjolthus Kjol Thorierin, uh, who feel rather sensitive about these attacks, and uh, I, I do sympathise with them. Because, as I say, at the very least, uh, the flower is not unique in this regard. But another reason why I find all this rather unfortunate is that it tends to divert attention from more basic questions about the flower as a festival of traditional music, and indeed questions connected with the traditional music movement as a whole. And that's the sort of thing really I'd like to talk about in this programme this evening, not uh, about this year's flower, or indeed any flower from that point of view, from the point of view of how uh, how enjoyable it was, or uh, important though that may be. Um, the whole movement, of course, has uh, which sprung up in the early 1950s and gathered momentum by the end of the last decade, and now at the end, near, nearing the end of another decade, has become an established part of Irish life. Um, has developed enormously, certainly, uh, in my experience. Uh, I think I was at the second flower in Monaghan. Uh, I've been at many of them since, and those, as it were, that I wasn't at, I met those who were there. And uh, in many directions, there has been a steady development uh, in some features, perhaps, of the earlier flana uh, fell away and uh, others have taken their place. Uh, but the movement as a whole, throughout the country, of course, has uh, um, developed enormously. Uh, there are branches of Cordes Kjoltori Aaron 
all over the place now, and there are these local flana and provincial flana, some of them attracting attention comparable to that which the national flana uh, has attracted. But perhaps we still must ask questions and we still must discuss the uh, background to the whole thing. Uh, I was talking the other day to Charles Acton, well-known music critic, uh, who is interested in traditional music as in other kinds of music, and uh, we talked about the development of the traditional music movement and of the flair, and one question particularly bothers him. Uh, Where is this development going to? We're all convinced that uh, what was done in the past by Thomas Moore, by Stamfords, by Hartied, by people producing the Emerald Gems of Old Erin on on harmoniums was a destructive of our traditional music. But it's, what worries me is that we've got this enormous popularity of Flahana and so, so on, but we are ignorantly bringing in just the same sort of things that nearly destroyed in the last, last century, only because banjos, guitars, things like that are popular as opposed to coming down from from the drawing rooms of the, of the rich, we don't notice that they're even more destructive because they're equally, they're not only equally alien, but much more widespread. So development is a thing which worries me intensely because I don't feel that a traditional music, a traditional music by its nature, can develop uh, by any intention or by any artificial, artificially bringing in things from the commercial world outside. All right, traditional music has developed in past centuries, but it developed slowly as the rural people developed, for, for better or for worse. And what worries me enormously is that we are still in danger of losing the whole lot until we have got some idea, some real idea, of exactly what makes all our traditional music tick, until we know where our instruments came from, where the styles of playing came from, where the styles of singing came from. Because we are having glimmerings of tracing origins. Uh, Professor Sean Otoma in Cork has, I believe, traced the origin of a certain number of traditional, the words of traditional songs to the songs of the two vers. I believe, I don't know, I don't know anything about this, but I'm told that Hagamafena Sharaling, for example, uh, is a medieval estampi. I don't know, but um, it sounds, that sounds to be either an immemorial continental folk song, or if it is an estampi, fair enough, that. Well, we can trace, if that's so, then one can trace that element to a particular source. We can perhaps trace some parts of traditional fiddle playing to the Corelli style of violin, which was brought into Ireland by Geminiani. I don't know. We need, it seems to me, we need to know a lot more of the old style, the real old style of traditional uh, traditional fiddling, to decide how much is that, how much is the sort of ornamentation that you can find right the way around to the Himalayas, 
through Kanti Hondo in the Iberian Peninsula, through Arab music, Greek folk music, and so on, were in a state of complete, almost complete ignorance about the origins of our music. All we can say about the harp that once in Tara's halls is that we know nothing about what it sounded like or how it was played or what music it played. We don't realize that almost everything we've got is only 200 years old. And before we destroy the vestiges of what came from before that, let us, for goodness sake, find what, the, what they were. That's what worries me about developments and the sort of things that you do get going on in Flahana, where you get, say, a camera crew going down and, and recording 15 items, and only one or two of them, to my mind, had anything traditional about them. You are, you are making, uh, then, an appeal for research and for greater... Uh, discrimination uh, based on this kind of research. I am indeed. I'm making an appeal for, for pedantry, if you like, for purism, for not developing, for not uh, letting old stars fall out of use until we have done the research uh, that can stabilize them and crystallize them. So if we do want to lose them, then we can pick them up later on when we want to. The present position, as I see it, is that were the Irish language to die completely, there are sufficient records, there are sufficient books and manuscripts for it to be reconstructed, painfully admittedly, but it could be done. If traditional music were to die now, I doubt if we have even yet sufficient recordings for anybody ever to be able to revive it. Well, does that, this not uh, perhaps suggest a slightly different approach to the one that you're uh, uh, suggesting here? Uh, is it not terribly important that a great that growth in all directions should be encouraged, that we should prefer an overgrown garden, perhaps even with a lot of weeds in it, to just one tiny little experimental uh, uh, horticultural patch. Oh, well, now it depends what sort of weeds, John, because um, you could be right from the point of view that that the weeds will tell us what the, what the ecology was. Perhaps if the weeds are just growing naturally, uh, we will find out what the primeval vegetation was. But if instead of just letting it grow, grow and develop naturally, you bring in uh, a lot of totally foreign weeds, um, if, and you bring in a lot of Colorado beetles as well, you have got no idea of what the original ecology was because your flourishing new weeds that you will have brought in, your new Colorado beetles, will have distorted the whole thing, the whole original patch, beyond all recognition. But are we not getting a bit solemn about it? Surely the important thing and the gratifying thing about the development of Irish music, traditional music all around the country, has been that... People are enjoying themselves playing it and listening to it. Sure, indeed. But people can enjoy enjoy doing doing good things as well as well as bad things, surely. And we have got this idea, a very true idea, that the sort of gems of old Ireland that uh, destroyed our music uh, in the last century, the deplorable arrangements that were made for harmoniums for pianos by. Um, by everybody from Stamford and Hearty down to God knows whom, um, that was undoubtedly done with an enormous amount of pleasure. I mean, the amount of 
pleasure that people got from playing them on the harmoniums I saw was enormous, but we now regard them as totally deplorable. We do not think that even Moore's melodies are a desirable thing to have happened to the traditional music of the nation. And what is going on now is exactly the same thing, only more. Uh, I don't see how you can argue that, since most of what's going on is uh, still, in the broader sense of the word, traditional, in that it's music uh, learned uh, from, by one player from another. You know, isn't that the essence of it? It's no, I don't think so, because surely what's traditional is what is, is what is handed down in a tradition and not what is brought in from outside. Um, has what? there ever been a, a, an absolutely pure tradition in that sense? No, there hasn't, but, or, or almost certainly not. But there's a different sort of movement, surely. Um, the gradual change of traditions in the past were as ideas filtered slowly into a more or less stable uh, culture in, a, in an anthropological sense, not um, what were brought in by... Um, an enormous wave of wireless, uh, I mean, of radio, of television, of gramophone, of a whole commercial um, battery of guns done for no reason at all except just to make money largely for people in America and in London. All right, the, the young people who pass this on uh, don't know that they are pushing a dangerous drug. But the, but the people behind them who bring the stuff in are pushing a culturally dangerous drug, and they jolly well know it. But do you think this is affecting the folk music world as well as the pop music world? I'm absolutely certain it is, and that's what worries me, because the, the pop music is being used as the technique of folk music now. And you get... You get you only got to listen to recordings put out by supposedly enthusiastic groups of traditionalists with the most deplorable bits of sheer poppery. And you don't you, you, you refuse to admit that this may be, however it originates, you refuse to admit that this may be a genuine popular development because the kids it's, like it. It's popular, all right. It's a development, if you like, but it has nothing whatever to do with our traditional music any more than Moore's Melodies had. Well, then, uh, you do admit, and you do uh, suggest, I'm sure, that there is a potential for genuine development. There is, in, well, I don't know. Uh, the whole basis of a genuine development of of a traditional folk music is rapidly getting lost because the that sort of thing happens in a more or less stable, rural, isolated community. Our community is no longer stable, it's no longer isolated, and it's increasingly becoming less and less rural. But do you think that this is necessarily uh, a militating force against uh, developing what, after all, is popular, not necessarily rural. I mean, people are people. People live in communities, even if they're living in cities. Yes, but there's practically no folk music in the world which came out of a city, surely. No, but then uh, cities, in the sense that we know them, are a new development. Not as new as all that, surely. There is urban. There are urban folk songs. There are urban ballads. There is urban. Uh, there, there is there are urban traditions. There are urban traditions. There are urban ballads, indeed. 
but they are much more international. They uh, are not of any particular community, and surely an Irish street ballad um, and an English street ballad and practically a Dutch street ballad are practically indistinguishable. Therefore, on the Irish level, do you, uh, is your, is your um, final word one of uh, no hope? Oh, no, indeed it isn't. But, but I have an enormous hope that, that, that sometime rather an organisation will arise, or I hope it might be un, Uncultus, who will, before all things, foster the old style, the real old style, instead of merely saying they're doing so, actually do it, and will help us to find out what, what really make, made it tick, because if a thing is good, I'm convinced it will survive, if it is given a chance to. But what worries me is that this folk park movement, which has been going on for five or ten years, will suddenly stop. The world fashion for folk will depart. We, sh we shall have our traditional music left washed up like a stranded whale, and because it has got so many accretions of pop, the the basic thing will no, may not be able to live live again. Well, is there any one single positive uh, thing that you would like to see done? Yes, I would enormously. I would like to see Uncultus or somebody settle down and record as much genuine traditional music as possible and to get hold of a musicologist with a real knowledge of the Irish language, of medieval music, of medieval instruments, and to unpeel the late layers of this onion and find out I, what I believe can still be done, the, the what happened before 1600 in Irish music. And in the meantime, uh, what do the hungry sheep do? What do people do who just want to enjoy themselves in what they think is uh, an Irish way? Well. Listen to what, an Irish, what a real Irish way is and do so. Why can't they learn from somebody like Sean McDonagher? And there, there is a, there is a marvellous singer singing. Why don't people learn from him instead of learning from New York? <laughs> Da Slay. <laughs> 
To many who would echo Charles Acton's sentiments, the symbol of the wrong kind of development has been the guitar, with or without beard. The guitar, associated as it has been with the worldwide folk explosion of the late 50s, which seemed at one stage to overwhelm our own movement here. Now, Bill Meek, from County Down, sings to a guitar, and I first heard him sing when he was a student in Trinity. This was, in fact, a year or two before the explosion. At that time, uh, I had started, uh, in fact, for many years, I'd been uh, adapting traditional songs, accompanying them with a, a guitar, and it struck me extraordinarily sort of in the few years afterwards that in this country that, that, that there were sort of people who were making quite a bit of money doing this sort of thing. Um, I know it wasn't... A, it was a, a breach with tradition in a way to do this. Uh, I, would, I would defend it myself. I wouldn't go into it. It would take an awfully long time to defend it. But uh, I, uh, I think... Well, roughly, why would you, how would you defend it? Uh, I think in terms of, of vocal music, uh, it wasn't a greater breach than say, introducing such instruments as the piano accordion, which people who would consider themselves purists sort of will, will uh, listen to for, at, at great length. Um, I admit that there is a tremendous range of Irish uh, songs that are completely unsuitable uh, for any accompaniment, and I would never attempt to sing a song uh, with a guitar accompaniment if I felt it was totally unsuitable. Perhaps the, the biggest songs and the best songs. The best songs, in fact, yes. But uh, I think it was a useful thing to lift some of the, the lesser songs, in fact. Uh, I think it was, a, a, it was very useful in, in that very fine tradition in itself, the pub tradition of singing, which I think is, is an important one. However, having sort of defended myself, uh, I could say that, that um, I'm not terribly happy the way this has developed uh, through commercialization and this sort of thing, I, I feel that uh, the on one on one hand the people who do this sort of thing best have crossed a, a sort of division line, and they're they're not really in the field of folk or traditional music anymore. They they've um, moved into a sort of a, a a pop music field, and I think they're not quite as good at it as the people who perhaps came up from the pop music environment. For instance, the, the young um, so-called uh, folk poets, uh, I think people like Donovan and Dylan, uh, 
there wasn't a movement so much in this country, but it, it was largely an American-inspired thing. Well, I think um, when they started writing their stuff, it, it seemed an exciting sort of thing, as if it might be poetry of the people, but it didn't really turn out that way. And I think it compares badly uh, to, say, the, 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 the words and music of, of Lennon and McCartney, which I think is perhaps a more genuine expression of the... the um, uh, of the words uh, of the people put into into rhyme or into sort of free uh, sung poetry. Uh, so in general, I think uh, um, today I would feel that that, uh, that perhaps the oldies have it. Uh, I certainly would be more inclined to go into the country and hear a, a I mean, I would travel a distance to hear an old man uh, sing the songs that he that he was brought up. Uh, to, to to learn by the oral tradition, I I, I would. Um, you prefer I would, to do that than to listen to a group. Yes, I, I mean I would go to trouble. I would go to trouble to, to go somewhere. Uh, um, uh, I'm not terribly fond of the group thing. And yet, it has been quite a remarkable phenomenon, and I think its its uh, impact has not been purely musical. And I think if perhaps we're wrong in judging it purely musically. Perhaps uh, the whole thing adds up to something of greater sociological than musicological significance. Yes, definitely there is this sociological thing, but uh, I would have hoped it would have been more so, in fact, than, than has in fact turned up. Um, I would have hoped that that, uh, that through this sort of uh, ballad movement, it's, it's, to use the word ballad in this uh, uh, um, context is not strictly accurate, but it's, there is a popular meaning to it now. But through this ballad movement, I thought there might have been... Um, and getting away from the tremendous commercialization of, of Tin Pan Alley and that sort of thing. But you know, it wasn't very long before this genuine popularity uh, started that the uh, publicity agents and the promoters and all of this sort of thing came in on the act. And as I said, uh, I can't see too much difference now between the, the people who came as folk ballad groups and the sort of straight pop people. Mm. And if anything, I think perhaps the... Um, the straight pop people are the better musicians. Uh, how about the link between uh, folk song and politics? How about the whole relationship between ballad and protest? Well, this is, uh, of course, a very old thing. I mean, uh, I don't know, I'm sure you've read Dr. Zimmerman's book uh, on, on Irish political songs of the last century and the century before. I mean, it's no, uh, it's no novel thing in this country. Um, it's, um, of course, become a, 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 a new sort of thing in, in, in other countries, uh, uh, especially in the United States. Well, of course, you did have a, um, a sort of a tradition of singing ideological sort of songs uh, from, uh, I suppose, the American Civil War and very much during the, 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 uh, the days of the Great Depression, the songs of, of, of Woody Guthrie and, uh, and Joe Hill and people like this. And I suppose the uh, the young songwriters in America today are somewhere in that tradition. Um, perhaps they're not quite as direct as as uh, their forebears. I mean, Woody Guthrie was a man that that uh, didn't go in for very uh, uh, vague sort of allusions in in his uh, uh, protest music, if we use that word, um, in comparison to say somebody like Bob Dylan. And yet, um, if you take some of the images in, 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 in Bob Dylan's songs, 
it's very, very hard to know what what he's actually getting at. And it's a sort of the, there's a beauty of words, but one wonders at times does it literally mean anything? With Woody Guthrie or Joe Hill, there was no question as to what they were meaning to say. The union is behind me. We exactly. should not be moved. Yes, yes. yes. I mean. Uh, um, and this this type of direct protest song, of course, went on very much in in the um, in the civil rights movement in in the states. Uh, I was um, some years ago. Uh, my wife Diane and I were working in an integrated school in in the uh, uh, it was in Tennessee, and um, we heard what was then to us a fairly strange and new song, uh, and um, it so happened that that the the late wife of the director of this school had heard this song originally in Texas. Uh, it was uh, a Methodist hymn which some Negro workers who were striking had adapted for the purposes of their strike. And she sort of took up this song. It, it became the, the anthem of the civil rights movement all over the America. I refer, of course, to We Shall Overcome. And of course, it was heard in the streets of Derry and other, perhaps even some towns closer at hand, even than Derry. Uh, Somebody was saying today it would be almost known as the Song of Bernadette. It's a curious thing about the most recent uh, events in the north of Ireland that the songs, ha I think the songs of the civil rights movement in the north are the We Shall Overcomes and the We Shall Not Be Moves rather than the ballads of Irish revolt. Yes, perhaps the reason for this is that... Um, the, a lot of the people involved in uh, in the northern movement uh, were students, and uh, I would fancy many of them had been interested in the civil rights question in America and perhaps in, in across the water in Britain, and they sort of learnt these songs, and it, it, uh, they have the sort of beat of, of pop music and things, and, and they came very quickly to them. They were very closely identified to their... their um, to their actual normal type of music sort of thing. Although I think, you know, you'd find uh, amongst these same people, you know, that, that, that they would have their good knowledge of, uh, of Irish music as well. Um, well, in, insofar as the Irish songs could be identified with, uh, with uh, revolt or just in, on general principles, you think? Well, I, 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 on, on, on both cases, in fact. Yes. Uh, but of course, we've had the situation by which, say, Kevin Barry became a was one of the first, I think, of the new wave of protest songs in the states. Yes, yes, that's true. It went over mm. there and suddenly appeared mm. out of nowhere. I mean, um, who was it? Lenny, Lenny Donegan was singing it. It was about fifteen years ago, yes. you know. And, and uh, Paul Robeson before that, yes, in fact. Yes. Yes. Uh, and of course, it's interesting you mentioned Kevin Barry because I think. Here we have an English melody. Sort of thing. Yes, of course. Uh, this they perhaps is, is to go back to what you were saying. Uh, uh, this is perhaps part of the reason why the um, songs of a sort of Afro-American background were taken up by the civil rights people here, rather than than, than going directly to their own Irish sources. Um, in general, the, the the songs are more suitable to be carried by a, a crowd. crowd. Yes. I mean, I, uh, again, back to a further thing. Uh, um, I'm not terribly keen on the great songs being sung by, by groups. Uh, this is part of my reason why I prefer sort of solo singers. But, uh, um, groups are even a crowd together? I can't see it somehow. Can you imagine sort of a, a, um, 
sort of 20,000 people in the streets singing Schlieven the Man, you know, it would be pretty terrible. <laughs> Tell me, since, we've, since we seem to have gone all sociological on this, uh, there was a simple, uh, perhaps even political, there was one simple effect which some of us had hoped, uh, perhaps in the 50s, in the early 50s, when the traditional, the purely Irish traditional music began to expand and began to gather momentum. We had hoped perhaps that one good effect of this would be that people in the north would uh, come into it and would be involved in it and would feel that this was our music north and south, you know. How far did this happen at all, do you think, Bill, as a man from that part all, of the country? I think it was always there. I don't think there was any well, need for them to... to well, the become. music was always in the north, but, I mean, the fact, a realisation, perhaps, that those who weren't actually themselves musicians would realise that uh, they've shared something with us. Yes, well, I think this, um, this, this in fact, has happened uh, uh, to, to, uh, to a great extent, actually. Um, I think the, the, the success of the of the uh, of the Clancy's, insofar as they were singing uh, um, sort of Irish patriotic songs in places like the Ulster Hall, I mean, it was phenomenal. And and, um, and you know, it wasn't uh, they weren't singing to what is described in the North an entirely nationally minded audience. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and on another level, of course, there uh, certainly a fellowship I think developed between. Uh, instrumental musicians, fiddlers, and oh, so this, forth. This is yes. one of the things that I, I've remembered from my very, very, uh, um, uh, very, very sort of extreme youth. Um, I grew up in East County Down, which is not a, a, a very nationally minded part of the country. Indeed, Mr. Brian Faulkner is the sitting representative for it. But um, it was an area where there was piles of, uh, of traditional music, instrumental music, going on all the time. And uh, I can th almost say that it was one of the very, very few areas of, uh, of human behaviour, to put it that way, where the whole thing of religion and what have you sort of was dropped, where people always met on terms as good musicians and this sort of thing. And I think even in the early days of the Flana, uh, you got sort of uh, um, solid northern orange Protestants coming down and uh, and taking part in, in in competitions and this sort of thing. Oh, I met uh, a couple of people even at the Flan Cashel who I don't think were uh, uh, owed any particular obedience to the Pope or even no. to the notion of the Irish Republic. No, and I'm no. uh, very glad to see them. Yeah, but, well, this, yeah. is, this has always been so. And it's interesting that it should be in music because uh, other areas where you would imagine there might have been this sort of get-together, there, there wasn't, uh, um, I think of, say, the, the amateur drama movement. This, perhaps, was because sort of the amateur drama movement was inclined to be based on, on parish uh, organisations, whereas uh, traditional musicians were, 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 would sort of meet elsewhere. Bill, do you think that uh, the movement here, the specifically Irish traditional music movement, has lost impetus, or do you think that it has even half reached any sort of goals, or what do you think those goals should be, very briefly? I think, uh, instrumentally, tremendous things have been done. Uh, I can think of sort of 20 or 30 groups sort of based in small towns or in the city, and 12 years ago, if we'd heard any of them, you know, we'd have all been terribly excited. I think there's an awful lot of youngsters are playing um, uh, group instrumental music, 
uh, and they're, from a traditional point of view, they're playing with absolute impeccable taste, I think. There's a move away from, from uh, introducing the pianos and the saxophones and well, my pet hate the squeeze box. And going back to the to the reeds and um, I should say the woodwind and the uh, uh, and the strings, and uh, you hear groups that have never in any intention in the world of playing professionally will never be known, and yet there are lots of them are absolutely splendid. I think. I think um, vocally, perhaps uh, things aren't in such a happy position as that. Um, and for this, I think it's it's. Uh, the blame lies on 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 um, group singing uh, and on, on on tremendous imitation of other people. Now I don't say a word against the Clancy's because I think they had a, they were a phenomena and I think what they do they do superbly well. But they have been bedeviled by this series of bad imitators and and I think this has been an awful thing. One pleasant evening. In the month of June As I was sitting With my glass and spoon A small bird sat On an ivy bunch And the song he sang Was the jug of punch a small bird sat on an ivy bunch, and the song he sang was the jug of punch. What more diversion can a man desire than to sit him down by an alehouse fire? Upon his knee a pretty wench, a hand on the table, a jug of punch. In the field of collation and research, very significant work is being done just now by Brandon Brannock, the first major instalment of whose definitive collection of Irish dance music will soon be ready. He's doing this work under government auspices, but he's also very actively concerned with a voluntary body, Napibri Illin, who report remarkable progress in um, and among Irish pipers. I asked him how many pipers uh, we have in the country just now. Well, had you asked me, Sean, we say two years ago how many we had, that's, well, maybe 20, 30. Well, of course, there would be a top 10 in that, and the others, who, like myself, would be never any better, no matter how long they stay at them, other than younger people who are coming up and certainly will make great pipers. But after the first meeting of pipers in Bessiestown, at uh, which 50 attended, we discovered that we had the names of well over 100, 120, 130 at the time. On this occasion in Betty's Town, we have been collecting names since, of course, and say on this occasion we had over 84 people, or at least over 80 people attended. And there again you'd say that's not the whole picture? Oh, not at all. Uh, since then we've had applications. We, uh, on the first occasion in Betty's Town, we formed this association of pipers in the Peabody Union. And since then we've had applications from people in New York. We didn't know they even existed. I'd never heard of them by repute even. Uh, from people in Philadelphia also and people in Chicago. And we discovered people around Ireland who had been playing the pipes without anybody knowing about them. Uh, there are kind of local centres, as it were, like a person who is interested in the pipes, say in Cork, can have the instrument serviced, uh, we say, down there. He can get a, a new set of pipes from people below who are making them Kennedy's. 
Here in Dublin, of course, as we say, Leo Rouse and Matt Coonan and that. And in Belfast, um, there's McFadden, there's Keenan and Cavan. Uh, it well happens then, you see, that people who are well able to get what they want, the pipes tuned and that, a new read and that kind of thing, that they would tend to stay around Dublin or stay around Belfast or they might be in Cavan without our knowing it. But now, since the association has been formed and we have the meetings in Bettystown and a kind of a half duty one in Dublin, these people are coming out, descending on us. And we've discovered there are eight or nine people playing the pipes up around Armagh. There are people up as far as Ballymena who are playing the pipes. A uh, phenomenon up there is that people who are interested who have been playing war pipes, say in the local Orange Hall, uh, would be naturally interested in another form of pipes, and some of these now have begun to play. And I've heard some of them playing the humours of Donnybrook, and a friend of mine is very good at playing the Connerys. It's extraordinary uh, to me that this uh, great development has occurred because while I personally uh, have always loved the Indian pipes, uh, it would be funny to suggest that they're the most popular of instruments. Uh, they're not indeed the most popular. When I say that we were surprised that there were about 180 people between here, England, Scotland and New York, say, <clears throat> there are, I am sure, at least 2,000 people in Ireland play the war pipes. There are, the Lord knows how many bands there are, and the, the national competitions that go across the international ones in Scotland and that, or at least probably 20 times more people are interested in the war pipes. Incidentally, uh, as a footnote here, the, the war pipes thing in Ireland is quite a modern thing. There isn't an ancient tradition of this, is there? A continuing tradition? No. <clears throat> I think any reference, we say, to pipes being at wakes, hurling matches and all that kind of thing, down to the the end of the 17th century, certainly did refer to what we now call the war pipe. Then, at that point? Then, yes. Uh, but the tradition was broken completely, The tradition wasn't it? was broken then, and, uh, well, we say there were no armies in the field in Ireland after Limerick, so there, there was no occasion to use them for martial music in, this, in that sense. Uh, the Union pipes, or Illion pipes, as they're now mostly called, they came into vogue, we'd say, the first half of the 17th, uh, 18th century. They provided the music that was required for dancing. Had they been in existence in this country before that? Union pipes. No, no, no. no. Uh, it has been suggested, of course, that the woolen pipes of Shakespeare are a kind of a misreading for the Irish word Ilian, but nobody explains how an Elizabethan Englishman could get a word the woolen from an Irish word Ilian, you see. And, of course, later then, that Union is a corruption of the word Ilian too, but I don't know how anybody talking Irish and English could corrupt one from the other. No, the proper, historically correct name for the pipes, the Union pipes. And what does that derive from? Um, nobody has made any kind of a investigation into the thing. I think the uh, plausible explanation for the name is that the first regulator, the tenor regulator, which is in unison with the chanter, was <coughs> added to the pipes around 1780. And I think that it and the chanter, as it were, were joined together, or they were in union, hmm. or they were in unison. And I'd say it's from that that the term must come. But what were they called before <clears> that? Uh, the pipes. The, the practitioners, no piper refers to his own set as Indian pipes or union pipes. Or that. <clears throat> uh, did you bring the pipes with you? The peepwee in Irish. It hooked in the peepwee Latin. That's all that is about, I'd like to see. But you don't go on to differentiating. Uh, of course, these pipes are 
we've come to end to think of them as Irish pipes because they are the mm. pipes that have of which mm. there is a couple of hundred years continuing tradition here now mm. and associated with Irish music. But of course, there are no more Irish pipes than than Gaelic letters, so-called, or Gaelic. Well, Sean, I'd say it in another way that the pipes are no more Irish than we say the Gaelic letters are, or that kind of yes. thing. They, they did come, but the what we call the Irish pipes now are really a distinctive form of pipes. That has developed here. It uh, has developed here. Uh, within the 18th and 19th centuries? Within the 18th century. Now, we say one feature that's... Like Georgian architecture. Well, yes. <laughs> well, the, we say the pipes might be described as largely Georgian because they developed during the reign of the three or four Georges. And I think George IV has once stood up and expressed his great delight when he heard a pipe of playing St. Patrick's Day. But... I must say, though, that the pipers haven't followed the other foolish fashion of standing up and hallelujah chorus a song like we don't stand up when St. Patrick's Day is played on the pipes. In fact, we wouldn't think much of a piper who played it. <laughs> it and the Irish washerwoman are things that aren't played on pipes nowadays. Um, but uh, nevertheless, you're saying that these pipes... The, uh, to say a distinguishing feature of these pipes and the war pipes is that the bag is inflated by bellows. Yes. Now, in all probability, that, that was derived from the, the Musette in France. Yes. They were playing bellows, played pipes now. Another thing that distinguishes, of course, is that there's a range of two octaves. On the war pipes, there's a, an octave and a note, as it were, like in, in the Irish pipes. It's uh, the pipes of the greatest range, I'd say, in the world. It just speaks the note something by a note or two. And uh, it did, the particular form did develop here in Ireland. Now, do you think it developed in this particular way because of the because of Irish music, because of the kind of songs that were being sung? Was there a relationship between them and the pipes? I mean, do, did the did the the um, the uh, uh, melodic structure and the modal structures of the songs at all influence the kind of uh, playing that was needed and the kind of instrument that was needed? It's a question that I haven't thought about and I don't know that anybody else uh, well certainly nobody has written about it I wouldn't say that the pipes were influenced by <clears throat> the singing at all no no um, so offhand I couldn't say offer uh, an explanation on, on that uh, I can't imagine looking back we say at the 1800 or at least sorry 1700 that kind of thing people wanted to dance and that they've suddenly discovered that the, the type of music and fashion then was one that extended beyond nine notes and that some genius squeezed the bag in desperation and got the an upper octave. I don't know how it happened, but certainly I wouldn't say it. the, the pipes developed in response to singing, certainly. Mm -hmm. And ne yet, uh, to me, the Indian pipes are the most satisfactory instrument now that we have, whatever about the harp when it was a living instrument, a uh, traditional instrument, I mean, I, as distinct from a concert instrument, uh, the, the pipes is the most satisfactory instrument for playing, you know, an Irish song tune in Shannos. Uh It is, uh, in my opinion, too, though there has been some kind of scientific investigation of that question <clears throat> by a piper, it was a little a paper published by the Royal Irish Academy, in which he expressed the opinion, at least re refused to accept Henry's opinion that that was so, that the, the pipes were best suited for bringing out channel singing. Uh, nowadays, it's a thing that this association we have formed now are thinking about at the moment. Uh, 
there are complaints that you don't hear slower as being played by traditional musicians. Well, there is a very good reason for that, that the traditional musicians, we say, have learnt music traditionally from people who didn't play them anyway. Um, the tradition of playing errors on the pipes, I think, was or at least Gaelic errors anyway, was one confined, of course, to people who knew Irish, like Martin Riley, Cumbaugh, Sullivan, and these kind of people, and they certainly have left no errors after them. There are two or three pipers who really play these errors traditionally, who know Irish and that, and who have a technique of playing. But generally, I'm afraid that most of the younger pipers, they learn to take a Wallace out of Roaches, volume one kind of thing, and uh, they just carry on as if they were playing an oboe or anything else. But it's a thing that the association has under consideration. We are hoping, we say October next, or on the next annual one, to have to devote all our time at the tin note, as we call it, to the um, development, or at least the explanation of the, the playing of these lures, the techniques that should be adopted towards them. And, in fact, since uh, pipers are interested, as it were, I suppose it's a, it's a, a fashion nowadays, or a, a modern thing anyway, to apply as much harmony as they can to it. That we were thinking also that we should make uh, some arrangements to have kind of rudimentary lessons for some of these people, because the, there's no point in trying to play, we say, the regulators, like you play the left hand on the piano. The older pipers, I remember, that were talking about this kind of thing, about, about playing slower errors, and I gathered from them that the custom was that even the drones were put off, so that a piper years ago, they're talking about, say, 80, 90, 100 years ago, that the custom then was to play the air only on the chanter. Uh, I don't know whether that is so, whether it may, you know, have been simply a custom in the locality from where my informant, very nice word, came from. <laughs> it's fascinating to see, as I've said before, this, the, this, um, the, the, the quickening of interest in this again just now. Uh, why I say it's interesting just now is that it, it would appear that the biggest revival of interest among young people today in the folk thing has been about singing, you know. I mean, yes. broadly speaking, yes. around about. Yes. Now, uh, that if young people, and, you, and you, I gather from you that it's young people you're talking about who are taking up the instrument oh, yes. again. Yes. Uh, <coughs> that they sh that is to <coughs> the pipes they should go, rather than say, well, of course there are, I suppose, there are many taking up the fiddle too. Um, yes, the, the pipes, I, I think, are we say overall, as far as in the in the context of preserving Irish music, the pipes are a better instrument in this way, that if you start on the pipes, you're stuck with them in the sense that they play Irish music and there's no point in trying to play Ave Maria operatic arias on them. Now, the trouble about the fiddle playing is that a young lad shows some kind of aptitude for playing on it, and the farm mother immediately sends him to the municipal school of music and immediately makes a kind of, a, instead of a tra traditional player, he's, he ends up transitional, or he is a, a trained school musician, as it were, like. You cannot be both. Now, I'm not saying that a person who is, as it were, learning art music should not, on any account, have anything at all to do with Irish music. The pity is that they don't know both, all right. But I'm simply, like, considering now traditional music played in a traditional manner. And I, I 
think that what is happening with the fiddle playing is that the sound has been lost and the traditional style of playing has been lost and that we will end up as far as fiddle playing is concerned like a bogus kind of spurious kind of thing as in, as in Scotland I think for cotton tourists like it would be all Jimmy Shans but there'll be no you might say traditional fiddlers in the sense that um, well I won't name who there are at the moment How do you suggest we could preserve the style best? Uh, it's really late in the day to attempt, mind you, to preserve the style. Now, that's in fiddle playing. The, the style in the, the pipes will be more or less preserved. All right, because, uh, sorry to digress, uh, one of the things that was done at the first meeting in Bettystown last year was prepared a tape uh, assembled from old cylinders with music from Sergeant Early, who was born around 1815, Leitrim music from Patsy Toohey, music from Johnny Dord, and music from, well, Pipers were alive too, you see. Uh, we had, in fact, a deal of music on this from people who were born well over a hundred years ago, and naturally, say, if they learned from people who were 40 or 50 years at that time, we could go straight back in style of piping, back to the time of Napoleon, into the Act of Union. afraid our discussion has had to end with much left unsaid. I should mention, by the way, that the national president of Colthus Kjolthori Aaron was to have been with us this evening, but unfortunately, urgent private business uh, kept him away at the last moment. However, I hope we'll have an opportunity uh, to talk to him and to take up the discussion on another occasion. Iowa Hagley.